Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking to sports performance scientist, Robin Thorpe. Thanks for tuning in to episode 335 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So this is a part two with Robin Thorpe following obviously part one last week but part one focused a lot on his time at Manchester United working through the managers things that he was able to do with the performance team and things that they weren't able to do the challenges faced by certain constraints them guys were under and obviously some of the successes or a lot of the successes which those guys had at United but this second episode this part two focuses more on Robin's speciality subject which is recovery. But we start off the episode having a little chat around statistics and the importance of having the scientist in sports science. So we chat off, we start off with that, but then we move, like I say, we move into the, the recovery area and then finally onto some of the work that Robin's doing as a consultant in the NBA and also in Major League Baseball. So a thoroughly entertaining and informative episode is part two in this episode that's coming up. But if you haven't listened to part one, make sure you do. Robin had me in the palm of his hand in, especially in this part two with uh, with some of the information that um, that he was delivering. So, unbelievable part two coming up. Make sure you check out part one if you haven't and I'll uh, hand over to Robin. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Perch. Perch enables velocity-based training, no strings attached. Engineered at MIT, Perch uses small and mobile cameras to monitor and manage weight room performance without detracting from it. By passively collecting speed and power data, delivering it in real time to athletes and storing it for post-workout analysis, Perch enhances workouts, reduces injuries and saves time. Perch works with every level of organisation, from the 2019 National Championship LSU football team to the NFL's New York Giants, military installations, high schools and to a number of growing sports performance facilities and even individual garage gyms. Perch is portable, easy to install and intuitive to use, making it ideal for every facility and every training goal. No more pre-workout setup, no more attachments to athletes and barbells, no more broken strings. Set Perch up once and optimize every rep. Reach out to Perch today and for exclusive deals and offers, tell them Rob sent you by going to perch.fit forward slash Pacey. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Kitman Labs. So Kitman Labs partners with leading sports teams to help them consistently achieve the highest levels of performance by increasing the impact of their data. So over 200 teams across the globe rely on Kitman Labs' performance intelligence platform to quantify the cost of performance and injury and receive the right insights at the right time. Through unique outcome-driven analytics and the most advanced athlete management system, teams can align their organizations around a shared view of what it takes to drive performance and health and move at the speed of sport to adjust and continuously improve. If you want to know more about Kitman Labs, head over to www.win.kitmanlabs.com forward slash impact. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by iMeasureU. So used by leading sports practitioners and biomechanics researchers worldwide to capture and compare multi-limb inertial data in the field, IMU Step from iMeasureU is a dual sensor and app lower limb load monitoring tool which helps practitioners optimize return to play for running based sports. So iMeasureU have just released their new and improved waterproof sensor Blue Trident, which includes ultra-high G capabilities to quantify high-impact steps such as cutting, landing and sprinting, longer battery life to collect data all day, real-time feedback to aid immediate interventions and faster workflow so practitioners can review long training sessions within minutes of training completion. I Measure You, now part of Vicon, works with military, pro and collegiate coaches and athletes from around the world, including the Australian Institute of Sport, US Department of Defence and collegiate and pro teams from around the world. If you want to get to know more about I Measure You, head over to their website, imeasureyou.com or follow them on Twitter or Instagram at iMeasureU. 
So without further ado, over to the episode with Robin Thorpe. I'm going to put something to you now. So you've got yourself, who was a fitness coach, strength and conditioning coach, moved into that recovery space, got into the, the PhD, academia, talked a lot about stats, been in front of Will Hopkins and, and getting a bit of a, a grill in there, but clearly having a grasp of, of that side of, of the industry. Have we gone too far that way with people getting passionate, let's say, about that statistical area and missing the first bit? missing that connection with the player, connection with the coach, bypassing that and getting too excited with the stats. Is, have I just described something that resonates with you or am I just getting completely caught up in what I just what I see? What do you think? Yeah, not so much the stats. Okay. So I think this, from a statistical point of view, we have to, I mean, this is something, some work that I'm doing at the moment is trying to understand what is like meaningful clinically important differences in measures but i think we're 100 percent we're getting lost caught up in data visualization and that end of things and i've put that in the same bucket as being tech operators and that's all we and that's all that happens or that's all people are taught to do i think i mean back in the day i did the fa fitness trainers award in whenever it was 2009 and 10, which was the, like your traditional sort of, if you want to work, work, work in, in football or in team sport, like these are the skills you need to have and the fundamentals. And, and that course to this day is the best, like, I mean, aside from like institutional, like degrees and stuff like that, that's from a outside of that bucket is, 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 was that set me up hugely. And it's a shame that's no longer around. And I think, I think Rich Hawkins was one who actually wrote that. And I do think we've we've moved so far away from some of the basics of sports science. I actually think we're we're like afraid to be scientists sometimes, and to really question. Like we're, we're problem solvers. We 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 want to ask the right questions. I think if we're taught, and I say taught or influenced to go a different way or a different route and be behind a computer. And that's the main skill set of us as a practitioner. I think we're probably in big trouble because how like, it doesn't really matter if we can create something that looks amazing and is a new way of looking at something. If we can't even have a conversation with an athlete or understand that process and that question that we're trying to answer or investigate, so I think we have probably gone a little bit too far in that direction. Um, albeit some of that is very important. I think we've, I would probably say that as, as, as practitioners, we've, if we struggle to find impact or maybe job satisfaction, do we then search for the next or the nearest way or method that we can? And I think because of that, it's been probably about tech operating and just being, and I think like the GPS boom, albeit was was good for the industry in terms of we could start to understand like external load, human locomotion, etc. It probably set up another like wave of well, all we do is operate tech, and tech dictates what we do, and like it, it's tech operate, it's tech dictating the science rather than let's start with the science first. And then can we find some tech that can help us? Not just using it because other people use it or because that's the trend. If if we need a pen and paper as best to apply science, then let's do that. But I think there's, there's probably a, there's also probably a, a fear or a expectation to use technology and to be, like sexy in that in that space i think and i think it's got to take like confidence in practitioners and a group of practitioners to say well actually well i ain't going to use that we don't need it i'm going to do this so i think that's probably where i mean what's, what's your thoughts on that 
that's because that's I think that's something that I think you probably as in, in your network and in the people I, you talk to and have on. Oh yeah, that's in the interesting space because I think we're talking about trends. Yeah, hundred percent. Massive. Trends. Yeah, cultural trends. Yeah, I think. I mean, we we spoke the other day about it. That kind of downward curve of people like yourself questioning these tools and going, do we actually, not do we actually need them, but just taking them for what they are rather than getting caught up in the trend. And I think there's certainly a trend now of, and I kind of go at it on social media with a little bit of a, a humor because that's how I try to mask what I really think about these things. But there is definitely a trend of, you know, t- taking hours and hours on learning R or learning, you know, even just the basics of spending hours and hours in Excel. And we've all been there, like the excitement of, you know, getting a formula to work that's five miles long and seeing it do something automated. And, it, you know, it gets people going. But I think there is that obsession with that side. And, that you know, that there's people in them roles now that that like that is their job. And that's fine. But I think for someone like yourself who has that fitness coach, oh, the, the, the emphasis beyond the coach, moving into that area, it's essential that people still keep that, that fundamental relationship building with, with, with players and with staff. And I know that's really fluffy and that always gets thrown out there, all relationships, you know, communication. But it is that. It hundred percent is that, and it just going by, just going through daily life, you can see the people that don't have them kind of skills. You get, you'll get on. A, I don't know. You'll, you'll probably get it with people getting in touch with you, and you just have this image in your mind. I'm not quite sure that person's got the skills that I would hope some would have in in, in a position that is front facing, a player facing, or coach facing. So I think it's really. Difficult to get that balance, but you go on social media, you go on Twitter, and everyone's, and I, I took the mick out of this again uh, a couple of months ago, you go on, you get sucked in. Like you get sucked in, you go, oh my God, Like everyone's doing this certain thing, whether it be in learning R, for an example, and not, not to batter anyone that is and like you know, crack on, it doesn't particularly affect me at all, but it's just interesting where these trends go. And like I said to you the other day, is it the industry – i.e. employers that are driving the trend or is it influences within the industry, i.e. coaches or sports scientists themselves driving the trend for a particular reason because there's a business behind it or there is an ulterior motive. So I just, I find that, like I said again to you the other day, I find that fascinating where these things spring up from. If it's like are we creating are we creating a need or there is is there a need there that we're educating ourselves to plug and there's various there's various different situations that you could you could transfer that into but i find that really fascinating especially in this space that education space of statistical programming um it's it's fascinating i mean put it back to you what do you think? I mean, is are we are we plugging a gap that is there, or are we creating this need ourselves, hoping that at some point it'll be needed? Yeah, I mean, to to be clear, I think there's there's certainly, I think if the if the the whole continuum and process is is there, there's certainly a need for ensuring you have suitable reporting, visualization, etc. I think where I see it being a little bit confused and lost is that if it seems that's now the process and what we the, the whole from the beginning of dealing with people, being able to ask relevant questions based off the environment that you're in, understanding how best to answer those questions and then who who is your who is your outcome who how are you trying to 
impact or who are you trying to impact and finding the best way or the best method across the whole continuum, not just, well, let's start or let's create. Well, we don't really have control about this. So what I do have control is that if I have any sort of data, then I can just make it look or appear a certain way. And I think that probably came from the, 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 re, the amount of data that GPS provides because with GPS, you don't have to do anything. You just ask the point, the, the, the main thing you ask, you have to do. And to be fair, this is probably done by, I would say people around my sort of era, if that's the best way to put it and how we had to try and convince players to wear these things. Now it's normal. Like I, I had Dimitar Berbatov throwing it against the wall. Like I'm a traditional player. Like, that's it's easy now to do that so it's well we've done we've just asked someone to wear something we've just got a load of data and now let's just try and create a visualization with that i think and without any without really a question in mind or a question to answer and that's probably where the two for me interlink in into interlink is the, the the technology in in terms of creating this wide um and vast amount of data and then us trying to figure out well, what do we do with it and so that is fine but let's not forget about the whole process before that because if we do start to create this this culture industry whatever you want to call it then i think we're going to we're going to probably get further and further away yeah we may we may be able to create some brilliant looking reports and graphs but so what if you haven't got the rest of it in place? So that's my that's that's sort of my and again I think it's the whole social media thing and the trends and I think creating insecurities with practitioners and I think how best to put this having a subject and creating confusion around that going so deep within a subject that the expert in that subject only really understands whether or not they do anyway does that create an insecurity in other practitioners to think well you know what shit i don't know anything about r or speed or whatever it may be i don't know that's that's maybe i'm sort of talking as i'm thinking but i think people who are who are who do have a big influence on social media including yourself as like the gatekeeper i think it's it's, it's interesting, it's fascinating to see how it plays out, but I think, to summarise, we shouldn't lose sight of that 0 to 80-90% of, of what we are as practitioners, sports scientists, and how we actually impact the field. Mm-hmm. No, I, th- I think you're right in that, with you saying, saying about the gatekeeper, I think that's, I mean, it's kind of on the same same lines as what I described earlier, but I had this thought over the weekend, last weekend, that the people that I get on the podcast are, are my decision to a certain extent, and that's that's feeding information to people that, is, that falls in line with who I want to speak to and what I think other people want to speak to. So I, I won't get a certain person on for whatever reason, and that's me choosing who people listen to. Like that's and that that, that freaked me out a little bit because I've never really thought about it like that. And the, the reason it came about was the the Twitter thing with Trump, like Twitter deciding, and however you want to like, I'm not there, so please you know pardon my ignorance. But it's Twitter deciding that Trump ain't going to be on Twitter and free speech and all that. And whether people agree with it or not, I'm not quite sure. I'm like. In between, but then on the microcosm, I'm looking at myself and going, I'm the gatekeeper of this thing, this podcast. And I found that fascinating. Like it was a little bit of a burden, but I'm happy to take it. But um, yeah, it's fascinating. You look that you look around and you see other people of influence. And not to say I'm a person of influence, but people I get up that come on the podcast are people of influence. And you, do people realize the power they've got within the industry? And like I come back to before, is it something that's industry-led, i.e. employers, or is it something that is practitioner-led for a certain reason? Uh, I think it's just figuring out. And people have been super critical 
And it's something that I spoke to Paul Gamble about a lot. And it was been critical, not being cynical, because that's sometimes a fine line, but being critical of where you're getting information from, what the path is, how is how that's come around from that person or that organization. And just been a little bit not not too haste to jump in, but there we go. That, I'm, yeah. jump, I'm jumping around there, but I think it's that's going to be uh, interesting to see how it how it how it moves forward and how it progresses. And yeah, yeah, certainly it's changing. Yeah. So, what was the transition like to the US for you? Because when that came out on social media, and social media being the, the be all end all, of course, that caused a little bit of a stir, didn't it? Really, it did. Don't be humble. It did. Yeah. Oh, I don't know. Um, what was the transition like for you? Yeah. It was, was it always, was that it always was, in, the, in the pipeline for you to go across the States? I think I mean, there's a few things. I think, for number one, it was the hardest decision I've had to make. Um, obviously, with there's obviously like a, I'm from the area and the sort of being like a fan of the team and it was my dream job. Like I got my dream job at 23. I progressed, I developed myself and in an area around sort of my research. And then I think with our jobs, like picking a geographical location is few and far between. I don't think we have that luxury really. If you, if, I mean, if you want to, if you want to be sort of sole, solely um, focused on your career, so I, I always sort of knew that. And when I got that, and again, when I got that job, initially, I was like, nothing. I'm, I'm putting everything into this, and like the old cliche, like relationships failed and all the rest of it. But um, yeah, it was the most difficult decision. But I, I, I was, I think, I was ready to to progress and I, I wanted to progress I'd, again, like through my time at, at Man United, I progressed every year I thought, and maybe the last year I didn't. And I, I wanted to progress myself more into leadership and management type experience. I think I feel I was ready to put my footprint on a, a performance framework a philosophy with all the amazing experiences from coaches, and fellow practitioners that I'd been exposed to. And, and yeah, and, and the right, at the time, the right opportunity came up. And as well, I thought, and I think Bryce mentioned this recently about trying to be involved in multiple environments. And from, again, from a sporting perspective, I was, I'd always been, I was always the sort of like jack of all trades sportsman. And like, and that, that interests me. But I think as well, like taking little bits of different sports, different environments, different types of people and athletes, that was a big thing for me. So the, the role of the Olympic athletes, there was a, obviously the Olympics around the corner. And I think as well, sprinting becoming more prevalent with team sport because team sport's my passion. And, but it was this emphasis on sprinting and the games becoming more, um, more powerful, more quicker, more intense. I think learning from athletes in the Olympic sprint world was something that attracted, attracted me to, to that, to that role. Um, and I'd always been someone who loved to travel and experience the challenge of experiencing a new culture and a new way of life. So it was difficult because I'd worked with at the time, Oli Gunnar Solskjaer, like he was, he was the manager. And once he was there, I think from a, pra a practitioner side, my, my role had in increased with him. Like I was delivering match day, like warm ups and more, more from the S and C perspective again. Again, it was always that sort of fluctuation between different responsibilities, but that was something that I was, I was doing under him, but and I'd worked with him when he was with the club previously actually at the time we um the under 23s didn't have a a fitness coach or a sports scientist to travel with them so i 
alongside my day-to-day with the first team, I'd do the the sort of match day responsibilities with with, with him then. So it was it was a big decision, but I, the time was right, and yeah, it was it was um, yeah, it was a big move. Can you go into any of the detail around the things that were that you were doing with the with the sprinters? Yeah. sprinters? Yeah. yeah, I mean that was. I mean it was it was really good because. I don't think team sport and football, particularly five, six years ago, really give themselves or credit for how advanced they are from a performance, sports science, uh, medical perspective. Um, and I think going into individual Olympic sport, I think you can you can see the the traditions that that run high and the way things are done. Um, and again, like human resources isn't huge for those types of types of sports. So you have typically one coach or one practitioner doing everything. And so they, they're, they're required to understand information around these different entities of, of sports performance. But one thing in, in, in sprint in, in sprinting was that we didn't really know much about it at all. And so again, it wasn't about, well, let's focus on that pie in the sky question which probably is going to take 20 years to answer but let's get the basics right let's create a foundation to then innovate and that's that's always been my perspective on innovation because it's a word that gets bounded around a lot and i think you need to have a, a good scientific foundation to then start to innovate i don't think you can just right we want to try and quantify movement in relation to acute injury straight away that's that's the that's the end game but we there's a there's a progressive pathway to that so it was it was it was a great opportunity to to start at the, the bottom and, and work our way up and understand the basic like what does training even look for an olympic sprinter what is the fluctuation of external load across a week how do these athletes apply force into the ground how does that change from a weekly basis how do they respond to the different training blocks or the different physiological training um, attributes that are put on them on a, on, a, on a weekly basis. And so, and when again, one thing which I don't know I spoke about was the one thing I don't think I did particularly well was integrate some medical monitoring processes or measures within a holistic, I would say, monitoring framework or again, whatever we term it, a athlete healthcare management system. And so two, two great practitioners in, in Matt Tomey, who was, who was doing this as part of his PhD as well. Um, and also Jazz Randauer, who was the main medical practitioner with the group. And so we were able to, to come together and, and, and really add those medical, um, again, and the more sort of extensibility anatomical measures but just, just to have a look at how they coincide with some of the more traditional ones that I'd, I'd looked at before, some of the more strength or power-based related measures, which again, very and highly relevant for these types of athletes who are creating huge amounts of forces. So bringing that together was, was something that we did and I'm, I'm quite proud of, of how we did that. And again, some of the data that we collected and which is, is, is part of Matt, Matt's PhD will, will be out um in in forms of publication in the near future so hopefully that adds to to the body of of work but also how it can one thing we we were all i think um we all thought about is how can this be relevant to team sport so that was always in our sort of mind it's like well yeah we want to try and advance this sport and get athletes faster essentially but how can we translate that back into team sport and that was always something that that we thought about and again it was um again that work should be should be on its way out very soon so we'll come back to that in a minute into that translation back into team sports but can you give us any indication of the stuff that will come out in in matt's phd maybe some high level insight into some of the questions that you mentioned just a minute ago what what train looks like how that fluctuates etc yeah i mean i don't want to steal matt's thunder because absolutely I mean, not it's his work but one thing again, like I said, we didn't understand load. Like for a sprinter, how do we how do we define load? So we've we've looked at 
I mean, there wasn't much GPS used in in this sport. It was, I'll be honest, it was all almost frowned upon in terms of, well, is this relevant for for a, a sprinter? But it was something that we sort of we backed. So understanding how our uh, athlete's perception of effort and load relates to the different thresholds or speeds from external parameters through GPS. So really understanding, well, what is what are these speeds or intensities that are actually really having an effect on on a, on a sprinter's physiology? So that was one of the first things. And again, another thing was what's not really been done much is GPS and there's always been question marks over accuracy in terms of sprinting and change of direction, et cetera, acceleration. With these guys who were who were who were running quicker than and faster than team sport athletes, we had the opportunity to sort of test that that question. So we've done a lot of sort of methodological work around that. Um, and then again the next part was well, can we use can we find a, some relevant performance measures for these athletes? Um, and if we can't, is there some surrogate markers of performance, adaptation, health that we can track across a long period of time, a season, to see actually how how adaptation is changing, how fatigue is changing, or when fatigue arises with certain types of load. So it was it was basically building from the bottom up um, with the with the idea again, way 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 in the distance of. Well, can some of these movement parameters be linked to potential injury? But again, we have to get the building blocks there in place before we try and even go down that road. So we're just going to take a very quick break in the chat with Robin. Hope you enjoyed part one. So over in part two, we dive super deep into the recovery side of things, which as many people will know, is Robin's specialty subject. So a superb part two coming up. But just before we do dive into part two, I want to say a big thanks to Hawking Dynamics for sponsoring this episode today. So Hawking Dynamics offer the world's first wireless force plate testing system. So the Hawking Dynamics system is built around what coaches want so they can test in the real world and not just in the lab. So you're able to capture reliable data on all athletes in a matter of minutes and monitor progress from their cloud-based system from anywhere in the world. So as I've mentioned, the Hawking Dynamics force plates are wireless, which means they're portable, and they're also trusted by teams at a number of different levels in a number of different sports. So integrating force plates into your athlete monitoring system uh, could not be easier and more affordable. So if you want to get to know a little bit more about Hawking Dynamics or actually see their plates in action, head over to the website, uh, which is hawkingdynamics.com, um, which you can, I mean, you can also schedule a demo and follow them on Twitter at Hawking Dynamics. And also sponsoring this episode today is Black Box Fitness. So Black Box Fitness are a sports performance equipment manufacturer based in Belfast in Northern Ireland. So if you are looking for a full gym fit out, if you're lucky enough to be looking for a full gym fit out or just want to add additional pieces to what you've already got, whether that be barbells, dumbbells, plates, maybe a new rack, some flooring, etc., etc. Have a little look at what Black Box Fitness can offer. So you can head to their website, which is blkboxfitness.com, or for a more informal view of what they do, head over to their Instagram, because they've got some really cool images of some of the recent projects that they've run in Australia, in the UK, in Europe, etc. So head over to their Instagram, which is at blkboxfitness, and they're the same on Twitter. Just coming back to the one thing that I only say it to remind myself that we're going to come back to it. That translation of that work into a team sport environment, and that and this this next question brings me back probably twenty minutes to the to the trend. And if you're an educator in the in the speed area right now, like it's booming, people are fully bought in, almost like obsessed with developing speed and is that is that a, you know is that because of the team sports are moving quicker uh workloads are, are higher 
speed the, the get the speed of the game is is getting is getting faster and people are therefore wanting to upskill in this area but from the work that's that was done how hard is it from your opinion to then translate that work and how well do we understand it as an industry to take that work and put it in a team spot right put it in a man united when it's three games when there's saturday premier league tuesday in moscow playing the champions league and then saturday again at stoke you know what i mean how, how are we there yet yeah like so every day when i was when i was working with these sprinters i was like right what can i bring back into team sport like that's my passion and i'm going to be back in that environment in some way or another probably i think it's fair to say that was that's going to be the case or that was the case and so i was like every day what can i what can I take from this? What can I learn and bring back into, into team sport? That was one of my sort of, one of my sort of targets. And one thing for sure, I think how we implement speed or sprint training in a team sport environment is the opposite to what happens from a, a, a traditional track and field sprint environment. I think that needs to be, stated i think that's i mean it's 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 actually quite obvious for me um and i think it's up to people within those team sports to understand i would say the basics of maybe sprint mechanics and the technical model dare i say that of sprinting and acceleration and then it's up to them, I think, to then best apply that within a team sport environment. I don't think it's up to people working in track and field to do that. I think that that they can be great. I know James Wild and, and Jonas, like they've been able to implement bits of what they do into that team sport environment. But I think it's up to I think there's great practitioners in team sports, in football, in whatever it may be, who who they're the best people they're the best place to in, introduce or integrate speed training. And I think that's, that's, I think, really important to, to know. I think if, if they, they have the, the basics of understanding that area, I think they're best place. I don't think it's up to a track and field coach to, to almost dictate how that should happen. Um, I think they should be the ones who, who provide that basic information. I think it's, it probably, at the moment, this goes back to the social media fact, um, discussion is that we have an area where we're delving so deep and we're going so um, like to the, to the minuscule descriptives and facts of an area and how speed can be, can change or can, can be integrated that I think we're probably creating a little bit of confusion for, for people because when you are in that team sport environment, there's no way you can, you know, if I think back to Man United, if you're working with fit players who are playing three games a week, like how, how do you introduce sort of technical sprinting technique training with them? I think it's very difficult. You may have, again, this is what I thought about every day, you may have an acceleration three, four reps max, maybe two days, a day before a game as part of a sort of tapering strategy into the game. And so I'm sure there's very, there's, there's certainly cues which can be, can be used to remind athletes of the certain fundamentals of creating force and, and quickly and acceleration, etc. But if you only got three reps to, to work with, how can you sort of try and improve that? I think certainly, I think with rehabbing athletes, you have more time. I think with the younger athlete, or younger athletes, you probably have more opportunities to develop certain skills from a, a sprinting perspective. Um, but I think we should maybe like try and strip it back a little bit to right. What are the fundamentals? Okay, done. These people who are working in the environment, they know the the limitations of the environment in terms of time, and also if you're working with a thirty year old football player or soccer player, are you really going to try and if you've only got potentially what 10 seconds every week or every two weeks, are you really going to 
change how that how they move. I think that's debatable. So I think to to summarize, I think the guys in the sprint world, I think can 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 give us really really good basic insights, and I think it's up to the team sport practitioners in that situation to then best prescribe how they use that. Cool. Love it. Let's move into the present day. We consultancy in NBA and, and Major League Baseball. And I'd just like to tie the recovery back into the, the present day as well. Your opinions on recovery now versus when you were at United and anything changed and how things have been implemented back then versus new environment with NBA and all the constraints that come with that, Major League Baseball, the, the obvious constraints that come with like the horrendous travel schedules and plane schedules. Where's your head at when it comes to recovery in these in these types of environments? How long have you got? <laughs> oh, what a massive subject you've questioned me on here. So let's see if I can summarize this. Um, so back, I'll start at the beginning. I think the way we, the way we've always looked at recovery, from a research perspective, so the, the literature that we know, it's always been about well, let's test one intervention, cold water, massage, whatever it may be, and let's see, let's use some generic measures of recovery, notably, probably like performance tests, CMJ. A, a sprint, some other maximal sort of contraction-based assessments, strength-related, and see what, see how they they change or how they differ to either different modalities or nothing at all. And so when we were like, so back, this is this is back ten years ago. We were, I was thinking, and again, very fortunate to be have like the research side, Warren Gregson, we had the applied side again this is at man united and it was it just seemed a little bit funny that we just like throughout the whole recovery process that we know there's there's many origins of where fatigue is is coming from that we just use use one thing and that'd be the answer to everything and so that was that made me think well let's let's try and understand what all these different interventions are actually doing physiologically. And that was, that was the process. And so we started to then build out again, going back to the monitoring, we were monitoring different systems, different biological components to how a human body sort of returns to homeostasis. So, well, what does cold water immersion actually do? What does massage actually do? What does a Normatec actually do? And then I think you can start to then branch off, the various physiological areas. And so we then we went, went, went down that route, really. And it was like after a game, the most important period, what is the what's the what's the most, and I would always call it what's the the limiting fatiguing factor at any given time point. And so after a game, you've got you've got an increase in tissue temperature. You've probably got an inflammation cascade on the way, you've got swelling, you've got potential edema, you've got micro trauma. And so, well, what is something that can, can help that? So you, you go through your big list of interventions. So the one question you asked was like, how is that changing now? That list is just getting bigger and bigger, <clears throat> rightly or wrongly. And then you start to match the intervention with what you think is occurring from a stress perspective. And again, monitoring links in. So you can monitor to unpick and figure out and quantify what is the stress. For example, if you are monitoring muscle soreness, that's giving you indication of potentially inflammation, potentially micro trauma. And so that's giving you, albeit that's not the answer, that's giving you, that's building that, that puzzle where you start to put the pieces in place to better make decisions rather than just say, you know what, Either do what you want as an athlete, we'll come on to that in a minute, or you know what? I like massage or I like Normatec, just do that. And again, so that timeline of recovery 
and the different origins of what's going on in terms of the system and biology, that changes as well. So um, you then sort of then and you then enter a period where it may be more linked to because that first period is a lot of it's more mechanical damage related to potentially sprinting, axel, D cell, a lot of sort of like con contractile trauma. And then the next stage, it may be more linked to metabolic disruptions. So how can we, we monitor that? And then how can we understand out of our massive list now of interventions and strategies, what can potentially help metabolic fatigue? And so can we find a way of increasing circulation and increasing the circulation of potentially disruptive byproducts and metabolites to, to almost, well, yeah, check that box of, well, the most important thing at the start was the mechanical damage. And then we're moving on to metabolic fatigue. Let's find these group of strategies and apply them at the best position within that process. And that's not a generic process because that changes to games, to training. It's so individual. We, as we know, like athletes respond differently, not just between different athletes, but as an athlete, you, there's nothing to say you're going to respond the same to the same given amount of stress or load this week to next. There's so many variables that affect that. So it's, it's, it's very much a process which monitoring can, can guide. And that's always, again, going back to the monitoring process. That first low hanging fruit was right. We know what recovery, we know, not know, we know we have the best information to give us an indication of what recovery strategy to use at that time period. And so when you, Oh, go on, mate, carry on. Yeah. So no, go carry on. I was, uh, no, I was just going to say, you mentioned about players just doing what they want and you said you'd come back to that. That was clearly a bone of contention. Yeah, no. So like it's, so again, one, my role at Man United, I actually sort of sat in between the performance and medical staff as like this head of re recovery and regeneration role. And it was fantastic because I got to see what, the medical side and department thought of some of these processes and how they would attack recovery. And, and, and it, again, it was more from a therapeutic side. It was more about how can we make the athletes just feel better, which is, which is, again, that's a very important component of this process. But you have athletes who, for some reason, and I still don't know, I don't know why recovery, performance recovery, athletes tend to, know best about what they want to do and that might be right or wrong but so if you if you have um that short period between competition or it's a critical time point which again in these leagues at the moment particularly with covid and increased frequency of games reduced time between games i think we should ask the question are we happy to settle for what the player just wants to do or from a therapeutic point of view, or do we actually look at what the stress is at that given time? And from a scientific point of view, match the intervention best place with that stress. And so this is the question. And I think there's certainly a balance between that all, between all those factors, sorry. But for me, if recovery and you understand your limiting fatiguing factor, then hundred percent I'm saying, well, if you're representing soreness, if you're representing a, re a reduction in HRV, if you're showing me that there's a reduction in extensibility with a accompanied pain uh, component, then I'm pretty sure cold water immersion in that given time point is going to be the best thing for you. So that's the question. Are we willing to sacrifice potentially that process for just an athlete just doing what they want but i think and then again i'm not i'm not saying it's one or the other i'm saying well in critical time points let's put the focus on that on matching stress with interventions and strategies but i think that's not just what we do the athlete belief effect is huge so if an athlete has a massive belief effect towards a certain strategy then let's find a time point in that process to, in, to integrate that and then i think if the medical team are involved in a therapeutic aspect to it as well. Let's find the best time to implement that process or that strategy. So it's all about working together. And that's something, again, through the time at Man United, it was always a, it was always a very interesting 
way of working and it was that's where i wanted to provide data not to drive the system the whole process but to give people give people like empowerment almost like oh the data shows this that means it's going to be cold war immersion it's going to be hot war immersion it's going to be whatever it may be a norm attack or ecp or or massage or where's the best place to put these components but again when you do that you have to you have to be quite clever and smart in how others around that process receive it and that you're not saying well you're not doing this this doesn't work that's that's not what we're trying to do we're trying to say to the athlete to the staff these are the strategies we're going to use and this is where we're going to place them over this timeline and this is a dynamic approach so that's that's sort of my that's how we approached it again nearly nearly 10 years ago but i don't think much as that has changed i think you've probably got athletes who <clears throat> you'd, you'd probably become more professional but i think i tend to see two things you see an athlete who just does one thing and that's it regardless of what's going on or the symptom they're showing it's, it has to be ice bath every day or then there's the other athlete again i would say under the professional umbrella who just does everything they throw the kitchen sink at it <laughs> and again sometimes and again one thing i didn't mention is the reason why there's a time line for some of these different interventions some of them are very contraindicated so if we are trying to maybe reduce tissue temperature reduce metabolism reduce blood flow then we know cold war immersion can do that but don't then jump in a hot shower straight away or then don't just then get in a, a hot tub afterwards in thinking oh well, i've done my ice bath i think we need to start to really think maybe as practitioners as athletes for sure the reason you're doing that is to cool the temperature of your skin and then the cascade after that is tissue blood flow metabolism reduction metabolism re reduced sorry and again that's maybe back to what we discussed before about educating the athletes because one thing that happens a lot is athletes become dependent on practitioners or strategies and for me it was always about give them the education give them a decision making tree in their mind if i am sore the easiest one what they're feeling if i am sore i know to go this way if i'm fatigued i have heavy legs i know to go this way rather than being dependent on a particular practitioner process or strategy but it's becoming harder because for some reason recovery falls into this weird hole of everyone knows like what works for them. Like I don't, that's like, I get it. I used to get it all the time. Oh, I know it works for me. It's my body, which is, I completely agree with, but it doesn't mean we can educate them a little bit to, to go down a different path. We're not taking anything away. We're just putting it, what we think is the most logical um, sequence based on science. And again, like back in the day, like Ryan Giggs, for example, had a very bespoke recovery strategy for himself. And I ain't going to come in and say, by the way, you should start doing this. Of course not. But over the years, you're able to say, actually, well, maybe you could do this at this time. And then what you usually do it before, or like just tweak things a little bit. And I think that's where you start to get the trust and then you start to move habits a little bit and you're not changing them. You just move them into a more efficient and optimal way in my perspective. Nice, mate. Love that. Love that. But I've got one question for you because I know you've, we haven't got loads of time before you've got a shoot. However, it's a big one. It may be briefer because of what we chatted about earlier, but where, where is the industry at to finish us off? Where, <laughs> where is the industry at? <laughs> and then I'm going to let you go. Because I know it's something that we wanted to have a little chat about. So we'll give it five or ten minutes before I do um, let you get on with getting your hair cut. Uh, yeah. You give, me, you give me a lot of grief about his haircut. Do you mention it? I, to, to, I know, talking about me. I need to, I know, it's like, bad, isn't it? I love the rings. <laughs> sorry mate it's uh i've let myself go let myself go during lockdown but 
Yeah, where's the industry? Where's the industry at? Um, where's the industry at? I mean, I'm not sure my two cents is worth anything, but from my perspective, I know we've touched upon it. I think we certainly need to get away from technology dictating science. To some degree, I think we've kind of given up on being scientists and asking the right questions or the most relevant questions. Um, I think we need to understand more and focus more on the whole process from a scientific perspective to how we report information or we interact with people. Like we discussed earlier, I think we're, we're focusing more to, more on the that latter end because I think it's probably the most accessible. It's probably the right word. That it's the most accessible at the moment through this technology era and how we can sort of organize and bring together that information. So I would like to think that we, we maybe go back to the beginning and not back to the beginning, but back to the start and like we'll have confidence in ourselves to, to start to ask the right questions and, and, and develop that way, I think. Um, but I don't know. I mean, I think social media is going to dictate a lot of that. And I still think, I know university degrees, masters, et cetera, gets a, get a lot of bashing. I still think that's the, the good foundation of, of understanding in a sports science world, science. And I'm a big advocate of having a practitioner academic hybrid mindset. Um, and again, for me, I describe myself as a coach or a, a practitioner who in any decision that I make or any thought process that I have, I, I, I use scientific rigor in, in going about that. So I think it'd be, I still think that's, that's something that's required, I think, for practitioners who are up and coming and, and coming through this space and being bombarded with not only data, but these different avenues of how they can influence the industry. I definitely haven't answered that question, but I think that's probably a, a mix of my thoughts at the moment. Um, I honestly don't know. I think there's, there's certainly, I mean, I always thought I'd be within a sports team and it'd be like the traditional pathway of moving up basic practitioner, head of department, performance director, et cetera, et cetera. But I think there's, there's definitely more opportunities outside of the day-to-day. -day. Um, different organizations that are, that are start to, starting to infiltrate health and performance and sports science. So I think from that perspective, I think it's exciting for people. Um, there's certainly people in roles now who, who are outside that day-to-day, -day, but have extremely exciting roles. Um, so I think that's a positive. Um, yeah, I mean, where do you where where do you see the the future of the industry? Yeah, I think I think you, you're absolutely right. I think it's super exciting. I mean, you said it it was pretty. I don't know in the first hundred words about you you work with Intel, and you got other consultancy things that are outside of. Uh, I know you do certain things that you haven't touched on for whatever reason that are completely almost look like they're completely removed from pro sport, and I think that's super exciting. I think people are slowly coming around to that fact because there's limited jobs, not only because there's limited jobs and over, um, you know, oversaturation of the market, but there is these other industries and other businesses that are seeing pro sport and want to pick up talent from pro sport and take it out and do cool stuff with them in their own industries and i think that's super exciting i think one thing that i'd encourage people anyone is to have that open mind of not just i mean you've had the tracksuit you've had the best tracksuit in the in the world and you've looked elsewhere and gone that's i want to develop and i'm gonna to have to step away from this and do you know work with olympic sprinters work in the nba work in the mlb work for intel i think that's a really good message to send people that Yes, team sport and traditional team sport can be exciting and can be 
really interesting, as you've mentioned for the last couple of hours, but there is other things out there. And we've seen it recently with people stepping away and, and very publicly like on LinkedIn, like I've had in, I've just done too much, 60 hour weeks for 15 years at, at certain clubs, not seeing my family, I'm stepping away. And I think that's quite sad that we're, we're seeing that. And I think more will come because, you know, especially COVID, like seasons are getting packed tighter than ever before. That not only puts stress on players, but puts horrendous stress on staff. And we're only going to see that exasperated because people will be laid off, especially in the summer in the UK. We'll come to the end of the season, people's contracts will be up, and there naturally will be, I'm, I'm guessing, a decline in in performance departments, and the, and the kind of fat will be almost cut off the um, these ever growing performance departments. But there is opportunities there. There's opportunities there for people like yourself who go out and are open enough to go find it. And so that's, I think that's super, super exciting. And it, it, what I'm really conscious of is putting this negative, putting this negative like shield around our industry because it there is a lot of rubbish, but there's also some horrendous opportunities, some horrendously exciting opportunities for people. It's just a matter of opening your mind up to accept them. And you've been a, a perfect example of that with the kind of stuff that you've you've done over the last couple of years since leaving United. So yeah. super exciting for me. Yeah, I think it's I think it's about honesty as well and like understanding and what you actually want from a role and where that satisfaction comes from. Um, I think it's it's been it's to move, I think having the confidence to move out of the day to day. And embrace something else, um, because like you say, there's, there's 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 loads out there. I think that people can they sink their teeth into, but it's it's do, doing things for the right reason as well. I mean, I've had a couple of messages over the last couple of weeks from people wanting internships in different countries. Two actually, I think two come on the same day. I don't get these often. Don't think I'm saying this because I get them every every other hour. But two particularly came on the same day and were into want internships abroad because of various influences that seem like I want to do a little bit of traveling but I want to stay and do this and and I thought how good is that like how that's what a, what a, an experience not only to get an internship but to go and get an experience of living into the country like for me if someone came, if I was employing someone and they lived in Australia for six months and then went to live in Bali for six months and did a one month internship like I'd choose that guy or girl over someone that's done a year's internship at a club down the road because there's just so much more there as a to me so much more there as a person that I'm like I want to chat to this guy like what was it like living in Bali for six months like you've got a more rounded not all the time but potentially a more rounded character personality you know interested in different cultures used to being around people that aren't like themselves so yeah, I was I was super excited to to um, to have the messages and be yeah, do it. Yeah. Love to help like anywhere I can. Yeah, and again, like like just like Bryce said, obviously a few weeks ago, like it, I think that is when you are looking at practitioners or people, like if they've they've had that well-rounded experience or they've taken the gamble to to go into another one and something out of their comfort zone. I think that's. I mean, that is commendable, and it it, it offers another string to their bow as well. Um, of course, in some circumstances, people aren't able to be in that situation. Um, but yeah, for me, I think it's it's, it's certainly helped me as a, a practitioner and as a person, and and just dealing with different different types of people. I mean, I never worked with female athletes before until last year. And that's a whole different kettle of fish. So, but that's that's made me a better practitioner. Um, and again, like just learning from some of these athletes who can create ridiculous force so quickly, and and it, it alters your mind your mindset again of well, if I go back into team sport or when I'm assisting different support teams in team sport now, like that gives me a whole other 
perspective on human performance and, and, and sports performance and how the whole thing interacts. I'm going to let you go. But if anyone's got any questions for you, <laughs> if anyone's got any questions for you, or wants to reach out about your consultancy stuff, your stuff at United, whatever it may be, what's the best place for people to, where's the best place for people to get in touch? Um, probably email um, robin.thorpe at live.co.uk or Twitter, Instagram, the usual, although Instagram's a little, it's not really a work thing, but, you know. Walk in the desert and all that. So, Twitter, do you know your Twitter handle? Yeah. Uh, Dr. Robin Thorpe. Love it. Thank you very much. Same. Instagram the same? Yeah, with a, a, a period after the uh, the R, the first R. Well, thank you very much. It was well worth the wait. I was, you had the, me in the palm of your hand with the United stuff and the rest of it. It was class. So, really appreciate it. It's, um, it's great to finally make it happen and Pleasure to sit here and for two hours have a chat. Oh yeah, it's been a, it's been good. Long, long overdue. Worth the wait. Thanks, mate. Cheers, mate. Speak soon. Thanks for tuning in to episode three hundred and thirty-five of the Pacey Performance Podcast. I hope you enjoyed part two with Robin Thorpe. So part one was incredible, talking about his journey at United, and then part two was fantastic dive into the recovery side of things and what he's been up to since he left Manchester United. So big thanks to Robin for giving up his time. Two and a half hours in total for this episode, an absolute gold shared, uh, as I'm sure you'll agree. Big thanks to Hawking Dynamics, I Measure You, Black Box Fitness, Kitman Labs and Perch for sponsoring this episode today. The podcast could not run in its current form without these guys, so I really, really appreciate their support. But also appreciate your support for constantly tuning in to the Pacey Performance Podcast and obviously your incredible support along the last seven years. So thanks for tuning in, and I'll chat to you next week.